Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, we have a spirited debate around two of the most popular theories impacting how the modern therapist works with couples. I'm talking about the theory of attachment, most commonly linked to emotionally focused couple therapy, EFT, and the theory of differentiation, which we originally saw with Murray Bowen in his Bowenian therapy, and more recently updated by the late great David Snarch in his crucible therapy as an integration of couple and sex therapy. Both differentiation and attachment are developmental theories, and they highlight the human experiences of balancing individuality, or as Snarch would call self-validated intimacy, and connection, which an emotional-focused framework would call partner-validated intimacy. The two models converge in terms of meta-concepts. However, they're substantially different in terms of how they view the fundamental aspects of adult development. And today, we have two gentlemen, both friends and colleagues, Nathan Hardy and Adam Fisher, who are going to have a discourse on how both theories fit into your work with couples. Dr. Adam Fisher is a board-certified couple and family psychologist. He's an ASEC certified sex therapist, and he's a licensed clinical psychologist in 30, yes, that's right, 30 states. His primary expertise areas are working with couples and the relationship challenges, including clients that have sexual issues. He's also a certified discernment counselor. In addition to all that, Dr. Fisher is an assistant clinical professor at BYU. He has a joint appointment between the Counseling and Psychological Services, known as CAPS, and the Department of Counseling Psychology and Special Education. There he teaches and supervises graduate students and conducts research around relationships and religion. He met his colleague and our other guest, Dr. Nathan Hardy, completing a postdoctoral fellowship in couple and family therapy at the Family Institute at Northwestern University. Dr. Nathan Hardy currently serves as an associate professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Science at Oklahoma State University, OSU. Nathan received his bachelor's in marriage, family, and human development from BYU and his master's and PhD in MFT from Kansas State. His clinical expertise areas lie in helping couples work through sexual desire differences, extramarital affairs, and he has a differentiation-based approach while Adam will present more of an attachment-based approach today. If you like what you hear more, 
You can look for their original article that came out a couple of years ago in Family Process. We will have more after the interview. Eli, back on the AAMFT podcast. So happy to be joined by Adam and Nathan. And we are talking about something that if you do work with couples, you feel strongly about one or maybe both of these theories. I'm talking about attachment theory and the theory of differentiation. And we see in models like emotionally focused therapy, EFT, and differentiation seen Obviously, in Murray Bowen, but when we come to couples, uh, really in the crucible approach by the late, great David Snarch. So I'm talking to Adam and Nathan here today because they wrote this really informative family process article a couple of years ago. And I'm like, I'm going to talk to those guys. And we all have some common background at a place of therapeutic integration, which we're going to talk about today. That's the Family Institute at Northwestern University. Gentlemen, let's get into that. We'd like to know a little bit about our experts, how did you get interested in systemic therapy and specifically in working with couples? Yeah. So my plan all along, I was going to go to law school and I was a undergrad and majoring in Japanese actually. And then one of my family members who was in a counseling program sent my parents this tape by John Gottman, like I said, tape on the seven principles or whatever. And listening to this, I'd never heard any marital stuff, research, anything at all. And I was just really intrigued that there was somebody out there who could study what was happening in couples conflict. Like I didn't know this was a thing and I didn't know you could be really interested in your career path. I just thought you just have to pick a job and do it. You couldn't just be fascinated by it. So listening to this tape and listening to John as everyone has break down a fight or something and talking about his four horsemen, it was really compelling. And that's what switched me over to therapy specifically. So couple therapy specifically is what got me into the field even before individual? So my experience really began as a missionary for my church. I was meeting with a couple and they had an intimacy crisis, an emotional intimacy crisis. The husband had been gone for about three months on a business trip and had returned and would not open up to his wife about anything emotional. And his wife was very concerned about what had happened during this time that it had completely shut him down. And so they, she began opening up to us as missionaries and telling us what was happening. And this was in front of him. And I had no idea what to do, but I felt this uh, just deep desire to be able to help couples in the situation. I said some things, but I, I left feeling this intense desire to know how to help couples. And so when I returned home from my mission, I immediately started looking into how to become a marriage and family therapist and started pursuing education in that direction. When I was actually in graduate school, uh, similarly to Adam, it was John Gottman's theory, the Sound Relationship House, that really was compelling to me at the time and got me just very excited about, about becoming proficient in couples therapy and uh, took off from there and I've never looked back. And John Gottman is the gateway for a lot of people to first understand the science behind couples and then to go deeper and to learn about this great field we know as MFT. So the family process article is going to talk about in these two theories, the many systemic therapists, both couple and family therapists hold very, very close to their hearts, attachment theory and the theory of differentiation. So 
Let's talk about where you guys got the idea for such a great article like this. I always love articles that are really applied and make you think and are not so overly research laden that they lose their resonance with the frontline clinicians that are doing the work in this case with couples. So before we talk about attachment versus differentiation, how'd you guys get the idea to write the article? I know folks like Sue Johnson will say EFT is not a religion, but I was really converted to attachment first through a circle of security, which is a parenting program. And I remember asking a professor of mine who does circle of security is there a couples model for something like this? And he said, oh yeah, EFT, this is an attachment-based approach. And EFT was what I was doing most of the time and I was really into it. And I, I still use it now, but then in my postdoc, I think a day in, I met Nathan and he was immediately taking the opposite position and like attachment isn't all you think it is, Adam. And we just started debating like right off the bat. And at first I was, because this is like my sort of holy kind of therapy. How dare you question attachment? But it, start, it sparked a friendship and then we thought, well, let's do something with this debate. So I got really excited about the fact that Adam was an EFT therapist and I had been to EFT training at AMFT. I had been to a David Starch training and I was so compelled by what was happening in these very divergent messages and really got excited about differentiation. That's where I found more clarity. EFT rubbed me the wrong way. Initially, I had a very hard time understanding how it could be truly helpful for a couple long-term. And so when Adam kind of came into my life, we, again, we had this friendship that just started building around our differences. And so I decided to submit an, an application to the Family Process Institute New Writers Fellowship. And so that got accepted. And what we used was this attachment versus differentiation debate. And so I was actually able to go through that process and get good feedback about our ideas. And so we decided after that workshop to carry it through to publication and worked really hard with each other over the next nine months or so and had a great uh, process with family process reviewers. And it's, yeah, it was just a really good experience. And Adam and I have, we've been longtime friends and it really has been built on that as well as just debating other ideas. For those of you that have not read the article and are just joining us today on the podcast, let's talk about the major similarities and the differences. So Adam started out as the attachment guy. Nathan was more in the differentiation camp. But for our listeners out there, what are the major similarities between the approaches and what are the fundamental differences? So one of the major similarities is that both models value the, the balance of connection and autonomy. It's not like differentiation is the only one who says we need to balance these two. They both value the balance. Attachment tends to provide more of a sense of security that then allows people to feel like they can be autonomous in relationships. Whereas in differentiation, the more you can manage your own anxieties, manage your own emotions, the more you're going to be able to feel like you can have authentic connection with your partner. And both of these really rely heavily on one or the other, where attachment theory tends to really depend on co-regulation between partners, differentiation on self-regulation. Now, attachment theory also depends a lot on this idea of safety and security being a prerequisite, whereas differentiation suggests that many times it's the lack of safety and security that creates the opportunities for growth because the conflict that we feel in that lack of security 
enables us to rise to new heights as people and as couples. So in the models that we talk about for attachment and differentiation, like EFT and crucible therapy, EFT puts heavy emphasis on relentless empathy to create that sense of safety, but crucible therapy is going to push for more collaborative confrontation. So this is the idea that when we are meeting with people, we're going to help people see the way to get in their own way and trying to create connection with their partner or resolve issues. So it's really shining a light on your own issues. And that is confrontational by nature. And so rather than try to make people feel the sense of, hey, it's okay, that you've engaged in such behavior because it makes sense, we're going to help them understand new possibilities by confronting the ways that they've broken down the relationship. So there is a sense of alliance there that both are promoting, but the alliance looks different. Another area of similarity is both are very clearly trying to construct a framework of understanding relationships. This isn't just take whatever the couple says as the truth of how relationships function, this is very much a negotiated reality we engage in with our couples where we are trying to help them bring in this framework of understanding relationships in a newer, hopefully healthier way. But the way that they frame these is very different. The attachment frame is going to focus on interactional cycles, but how those cycles inevitably are leading to a lack of safety and security in the relationship. And so we're going to create new cycles that are very empathic and create secure bonding. Snarch also focuses on interactional cycles, but the greater focus, I believe, is more on how couples are getting in a cycle of reinforcing comfort and safety by avoiding anxiety. And so he is promoting this idea of growth through anxiety tolerance. And so to do that, you have to learn how to manage anxiety simultaneously as your partner may be opposing what you want in the relationship. So that's more of the framework that he is trying to negotiate with his couples. So there's a clear difference there. Also with EFT, you're accessing and sharing deeper emotions with each other and trying to provide an empathic stance with the other but in Crucible, it's about self-confrontation in the presence of the other person. So you're, you're confronting maybe something in yourself that needs to be acknowledged or changed or something that you truly want in the relationship but have not been honest about. And then one more here is just is that they're very different in their pacing of the couple's therapy itself, whereas EFT takes a more slowed down the process type of approach, crucible therapy tends to speed up the process. And the purpose of that in crucible to speed through the process is, is to enable couples to feel like they can get traction quickly. It generates hope that they don't have to stay in the anxiety for long, but that they can actually work through it pretty quickly. Nevertheless, in EFT, right, if we slow down the process, it really gives people the time to de-escalate their own emotions, to really focus in on what's really happening between them in a slower way that allows space to build that understanding of each other. So there, those are some thoughts. Yeah, I would add, too, that, that the meaning that is attached to the conflict or the cycle is quite different. In EFT, right, the cycle, the negative cycle means something is broken down, like this is expected, it does happen, but it means something isn't going well. There's insecurity, there's a reactivity with the couple in the negative cycle. My impression with Schnarch and Crucible therapy is that the negative cycle or the conflict is what's supposed to happen. That a marital relationship, a romantic relationship is supposed to produce these kinds of 
patterns which pressure both partners to grow. So a different frame even or meaning of what the cycle even means. Both an undifferentiated person and an insecurely attached person look very similar at the beginning of therapy. And I think both models, as you were saying, have different ways to get to a more securely attached or a more highly differentiated couple system. So let's talk about for which type of therapist do you think each model works best for and for which type of client? Because we talk a lot in my world of psychotherapy integration and common factors of the therapist worldview being certainly important as far as what you like, model selection or how you integrate, but also that the need to match to the client worldview and the client, in this case, system couples, attitudes and preferences. So let's talk about what type of therapist likes each approach and for what types of clients does each approach work better for? So with EFT, in terms of therapists, I would say you are moved by this idea of relentless empathy, romantic love as primarily or really only about attachment bonds in some cases. You really enjoy working with emotion, accessing it, heightening it, having it shared between partners. Those kinds of experiences just light you up. I think EFT therapy, we generally see people as trying their best, but reacting out of a sense of insecurity. On the other hand, uh, a crucible kind of approach, you might agree people are capable of acting from their best self, but you also really believe that pretty much everybody has a dark side and you really value helping people own up to that bad behavior that they might do in addition to building on their strengths. Attachment might matter, but it's not nearly as important as emotional maturity, standing on your own two feet, confronting yourself and this kind of thing. Yeah, and I would agree that therapists who have these sort of frames in themselves, these ways of looking at the world, are going to gravitate more towards one of those approaches or models. And to some degree, that's beneficial because there's a good match between the therapist and the model, which makes it so that the therapist is actually going to do it with a strong belief in it. And they're going to be able to probably use it more effectively because they do believe in it and it does resonate with them so well. So I believe that has merit. Nevertheless, there are limitations to every therapist's own viewpoints and their own internal worldview. And therapists can also fall into the trap of believing too much in themselves and in what they believe as being what's best for everyone and what's best for all their clients. And that's a major limitation of finding yourself gravitating towards one and just excelling and becoming great at it. In my opinion, that can be a limitation in such a pluralistic, multicultural world with such complex issues that clients bring to our offices. And then in terms of thinking about the client, likewise, right, clients are bringing in their own worldviews, and there is value in the match between our approach and whether clients are able to integrate that approach into how they understand their own relationships. Yet again, there's a limitation there. Clients are not always the best at knowing what's healthy for relationships, hence they're in our office. So why would we just rely on what they think and what they feel is good for relationships when obviously that hasn't been working out for them. And again, as I mentioned earlier, I think this is a process of negotiation 
between us as therapists and our clients, where we are trying to create a shared collaborative agreement on what the realities are of their situation and how to work through them. And that's just good therapy. That cuts across both frameworks here. But I also think, and I'll share a little bit of a case example, it's dangerous, in my opinion, to only pull on one framework in our negotiation with our clients. And I'll give you one example of how this came up for me. And obviously, this is where I would see maybe a limitation in the attachment framework. So I was working with a couple where the husband had a affair with an old friend that he knew growing up. He had found her online and they had gotten together and had sex. And this came out pretty quickly after it happened. And his wife found out right away. In the story, what I found out was that he was feeling sex deprived in the relationship. She had been pregnant and had a baby and was not really sexually interested at all. And so he was very sexually frustrated. But what I often find with infidelity is usually the person who has stayed resolute about the marriage or relationship and not engaged in any sort of betrayal to that extent has lots of questions that they are trying to understand how this could have happened. And uh, for her in this case, she had a hard time believing that he did not have feelings for this woman, that he didn't somehow have love for her. And so I use this as an opportunity to talk about a, some new frameworks of understanding that she could bring. And one of the things, without getting into too many details, one of the things that I um, promoted was an idea that perhaps the issue was not that he loved this woman, but that he himself was love dependent, that he needed too much love, that he wasn't feeling like he was getting enough of at home. And his solution to that love dependency was to get it elsewhere. And in a way, I framed this as a negative thing, that his love dependency was a negative thing. And that would be heretical in an EFT landscape. You would never frame love dependency as a bad thing. But in this case, I felt that I was providing a explanation for her that she could understand that would frame his behavior in a way that made sense to her, but also helped disconnect the sense of he was just pursuing a particular individual. Also, I think sense of attachment could be problematic here in this, in the case of maybe then he didn't love me as being maybe her story. And I wanted to get away from that as the story that he didn't love her and rather that he has some internal demons, some internal issues that he has to figure out that makes him more capable of loving her. And that's his, not that she's unlovable, but that he himself lacks an ability to be loving to the degree that might be needed for a relationship. Also, what's happening here is I'm talking to her. I'm creating an isomorphic intervention where I'm also, I'm talking to her about him, but I'm also sending a message to him that he needs to be thinking about where his own limitations are. And of course, I'm not going to just leave this hanging in the air without checking in with him and verifying if this might be a fit for him or not. But I found that this moved the case forward in a very positive, productive way, even though an attachment framework might find what I did a very bad thing.
I'm just chuckling at this idea of the very bad thing. That's funny. Certainly in an EFT frame, he wasn't able to reach for her. Instead, he went elsewhere. I think to modify what you're saying a little bit, maybe just refl- touch on our debate here a little bit. I don't know if I would call like love dependency. I, I think because EFT would stress like interdependency, right? That we're all, we're effectively dependent and... An EFT frame might say that you're the case you're talking about. He was ineffectively dependent. At the same time, to acknowledge the other side of this, I like the responsibility piece, like owning up to my stuff, owning up to my challenges and having a therapist who can help me do that directly, which is something I appreciate about the differentiation side. And I'll also add here, there, there has been times where I've provided what I feel is a positive differentiation frame that clients have not responded well to. And so I back off of it a little bit and I try to meet them where they're at and try to really understand where we can find a shared reality. And that has allowed me to bring in more validity to the attachment side than I might not normally do because of where I tend to lean as an individual. But I do find that as therapists, we have to be humble. We have to be open to even us. We could be wrong. I could be wrong. And, and I think Many of the models out there don't promote enough humility. They promote allegiance to the viewpoint that is being promoted. And that is in and of itself is a limitation to our field, in my opinion. I spent a whole career talking about the similarities and the commonalities behind models. And certainly one of those common factors is your allegiance to a model because you believe it and you sell it as a credible thing. Clients resonate with that. And certainly people like David Starch, Sue Johnson, and guest on our show spent their whole career clinically with a research base. Of course, they believe that will work with every system and every couple. But the problem of getting too locked into that, we always say it's better to be passionate about theory in general than a theory. Because if you only know one, you lose perspective and see the commonalities between many. And as, as we've said today, there are some core differences here, but also some commonalities between the two approaches. And your story is a good one. I think also being humble, yes, to know that even if it therapists are therapist-centric, we believe if it works for us or we've seen so many patterns or cycles, we know what will work for the client. But really asking the client, really these pivotal moments research, asking the client what is significant for them, not only in the session and therapy, but their understanding. And even if you have an understanding of the cycle, if you do not feed that back to the couple, in a way that is non-pathologizing, that frames it as moving forward in a possible way. So whether you're using an attachment frame or differentiation frame, it is very important that the couple understand that cycle and understand that the way to come out of that is taking accountability for their part instead of trying to change their partner. And I think the two lenses, attachment framework would say, yes, you have to create the safety so that you can come to your partner. And when you show your vulnerability, that your partner will nurture it and not use it against you. Or a differentiation framework, as you're saying, it says, no, you have to not take it so personally. If your partner doesn't give you the ideal response, you have to be able to deal with it. And as you were saying earlier, it's just built into how relationships are. Both of them also, which we haven't talked about yet, referred to, we got to be this way in our current relationship for a reason. We say we only know of the relationship that we're in and then our blueprint, which is our family of origin. And many of our clients don't have good blueprints. So I think another similarity, I'm curious how you will do that, is to tie in the past to the present. And probably one of the ways of integrating these approaches and finding a way what will work for your client is to understand their family of origin experience and what they learned 
from their parents. What do you think about that? And how do you assess that in deciding what framework is going to match your clients? The family of origin stuff is important. And I tend to focus first on the sequence or interactions that's really happening between the couple, because that's really what they want to deal with. But that in and of itself becomes a picture to write those stories from their life. And sometimes I do have clients who come in very clearly. We want to understand how our backgrounds are impacting this. Other clients are almost reticent to go there. And so I tend to focus on what the client is bringing up at the time in terms of their own understanding of the role of their family of origin and try to work from there. So if they seem cut off from that understanding, I'm going to try to bridge more of that in slowly but surely. And if they seem really entrenched in intrapsychic and family of origin explanations for everything, I'm going to try to, in a way, maybe help them try not to get too locked into just trying to explain everything away by my partner's or my own sad history. And nevertheless, they do provide, right, these blueprints and worldviews that clients bring. If I do go there, I'm trying to bridge the connection back to what's happening in the relationship and what they ultimately want out of this relationship or out of the therapy. And I'm always trying to bridge it back. So almost like a rubber band, right? If we go down, we're going to come back up. And I'm trying to carefully measure that process. And I think differentiation and attachment both value an understanding, but neither one of them, neither EFT nor crucible therapy, depends on needing to spend lots of time there to make for effective therapy. The understanding of those stories can create mutual understanding, self-understanding. They can create some context, some motivation for change. But ultimately, just insight alone is insufficient in these models. These models bring up, as we said, very passionate followers as their originators of both EFT and the crucible approach of very passionate, strong personalities. So do you think this is an either or type of debate or is there space for both and perspective, gentlemen? So yes and no. Yes, it's both. And yes, it's either or. So this is where things get really complicated. It's either or in a sense, because some of the things that the attachment framework as it's used by these models says wouldn't fly in a session of differentiation crucible type of therapy and vice versa. To a degree, you can't do both as they currently exist. But in my opinion, if you probe the deeper and and complex meanings behind the approaches, behind the theories, there's definitely space for these to coexist. And I would say we need them to coexist. In other words, EFT and crucible therapy have their limitations. These are very pure form models. And if we do them as they specifically are, they're going to be advantageous for some, but not for everyone. And if we really want to move the field forward, we need to have sophisticated explications of integration that will allow us to work with multiple types of clients and multiple types of issues as they're presented to us. And in an ideal world, we would have a model that is much more complex and nuanced than these two models currently are. I think there's a possibility for the both and it just, it's not, in my opinion, it's not fully out there yet, hasn't been fully developed. 
There have been attempts at integration that I value. So for example, the developmental model of couples therapy, which I love, integrates attachment differentiation in neuroscience and does so pretty well. I think one of the big ways attachment is integrated is by looking at each partner's attachment histories primarily as an assessment, but also the there's a big emphasis on helping partners not re-trigger attachment wounds or re-traumatize each other with their current behavior in the relationship. And so you, in a way, you're trying to create a block to those negative interactions. You could call that creating safety, although that's not what's being, that's not what's being used in the language. But one of the ways that they're really working in the developmental model is helping each partner manage their own anxiety to the degree that they're not going to engage in those re-traumatizing or re-triggering behaviors towards their partner. And so they're really leveraging differentiation type interventions to get there. So in a way, I still see the developmental model relying more on differentiation types of approaches, but they, they bring in the attachment language more and they definitely are doing some things that help create a sense of security in the relationship. Relational life therapy is another one. It does a lot of inner child work and really spends some time trying to create more self-understanding but it's done in a very confrontational kind of joining through the truth is the language type of way. And so I see these models blending some of these ideas in different ways. And those aren't the only ones. There's others out there that blend more strongly with attachment. But I think we're not fully there yet. And Adam and I have been working on describing what each of the main dilemmas are in the debate beyond what we've done in this family process paper. So right now we have about a two-page table that we've described different dilemmas and different possibilities. So we call these integrative dilemmas and integrative possibilities. So in the dilemmas, we frame up what the dilemma is. And in the possibility side, we describe how these could mutually coexist. It's really in drafting form right now. And while I love what we're doing, it's still very theoretical and still very difficult to map out. And I think we also need to describe what are the integrative practices, not just the dilemmas, not just the possibilities, but the actual practices. What would this look like? How would you apply it? And that's something that's still underdeveloped on our end. Continue on this sort of either or or both and kind of framework. I agree that in their sort of pure forms, these two models are not really compatible in a lot of ways. And they see conflict differently. How a couple should act is seen differently, I think, in a lot of ways. If people are going to combine them in, in, in pieces or in parts or whatever, I think what ends up happening is people still in assimilative kind of an approach, like people lean one way or the other more. For example, I know like Les Greenberg's couple therapy, EFT for couples, he does self-regulation explicitly, but it still starts with co-regulation. For me, in my work, this co-regulation kind of approach with EFT works really well about half the time. And the other half of the time, as I was in training, I was really frustrated thinking, I'm just not doing the model well enough. And that was undoubtedly true, but that was where I always went to. Like, maybe I'm just not doing it well enough. It was never the possibility that maybe this individual or couple needed something else. And what really, one of the things besides Nathan's influence that has brought me to the dark side, so to speak, <laughs> is this one of my own therapists totally trusted her, had this amazing context of safety, felt all the warmth, the unconditional positive regard and the relentless empathy. And in a certain session, she actually called me out and it shocked me. I was 
complaining about something related to my wife. And she says, Adam, this was not your best moment. And there was such warmth behind this that it was probably the most helpful thing that she said to me in three years. And I feel like a lot of therapists that I've shared that with, you could tell if they're more of an EFT or more of a differentiation kind of therapist, because the EFT type therapist, the relentless empathy type folks, many of them are gassed at that type of intervention. Like, how would that be helpful for you? That's so abrasive, but yet it was really helpful. So I, I appreciate the sort of adding in to an EFT approach, the ability to collaboratively confront people on their stuff, not lead it. I don't lead with that, but in a context of safety, it's really powerful. I appreciate that story. And I think another commonality underpinning of whatever you do, you have to have a strong alliance. It's with those necessary, but insufficient, as we say, form of things that you have to imagine in order to do any work, you have to have that from both perspectives, but that's all you have, that's not enough. So yeah, you got gently and warmly challenged and that made a big difference to you. This debate not only is stimulating, I think for listeners, but it does have a huge impact. And I guess I am curious what you all think, and this is still something that ties you together professionally and can't wait to see with this table of scenarios and dilemmas that you all have been talking about, what comes of that. But I'm wondering how you think this debate has impacted the field of couple therapy. I think it's had a good impact and a bad impact. So I mean it when I say good and bad. So I think it's been good in the sense that it's really made it so that we are thinking more deeply about the differences and dilemmas. And so we can't just skate by in the field and think that it's one way. We have a foil to each of these models that we have to consider. And so we, in a way, we have to wrestle with this. We can't just let the debate go and go on our merry way, thinking that we're going to just be amazing in this field, doing the one thing that we've got. So the foil provides an opportunity for us to really wrestle, to really think through, and presents a need for us to be flexible as therapists in the room, which I think is a good thing. It's also created, in my opinion, a major fragmentation of care because the debate has been presented in such a polarizing way that we do tend to take a side. And in so doing, we rule out all other possibilities and we embrace the one way. And we then carry that out as this is the best way to do therapy and don't do it any other way. And then our clients are either the beneficiaries or the victims of such a stance. And in some cases, our clients will not benefit from such a polarizing position that we take in this field and profession because they will miss out on some therapeutic opportunities that could really help them. And so I actually have very strong feelings about the need to depolarize this debate. It, sometimes it amazes me. We, as couple therapists, as claiming to be masters of the field of love and having this great ability to depolarize couples and yet we create our own polarization. And it's an astounding hypocrisy that we as a field don't really talk about. And we don't really want to believe is happening. But we are polarizing ourselves at the same time that we're saying we are depolarizing couples. Even as we look at the nation as a whole, or just the world, where there's all these pockets of polarization around any number of issues. And we have this ability to potentially add to the conversation about how to depolarize, but we ourselves are polarizers. That's a problem. 
And not only do we need to depolarize for the sake of our profession and for our clients, but if we truly see ourselves in this way of being citizen therapists where our voice matters for the world, then we don't just need to do this for our clients and for the field. We need to do this for the world so that we can have a greater impact there. And I'll just give you an example where fragmentation of care has happened in other fields because of polarized debates. I would say in the larger field of psychotherapy versus medical therapy for psychological issues, there is a long-standing debate between medication and therapy. And so clients and patients would come and they would get one or the other for many years. And they were convinced and told not to do one or the other. And they were sold these different models, the models of the mind and how your mind works psychologically and the models of like the chemical imbalance in the brain. And that created a major fragmentation of care that we now look back and understand, wow, that was an issue. Obviously, it's, very, it's much more complex than that. The same thing happens in the medical industry today. Many patients who, who are given symptom treatments need more preventative types of care that can't be answered with certain drugs or medications that the medical industry may typically depend on initially. So even the medical profession is having its own crisis of fragmentation of care. We need to deal with this and we need to do it gracefully without denigrating the other side. We need to see both sides and see how they both matter and what they each can contribute without necessarily having to dilute the benefits of their differences. Adding to that, yeah, I would say couples in a lot of cases are listening to these talks by Johnson or Schnarch or whoever. They're reading these books and they're taking on these frames as this is the explanation for what's going on with my marriage. Yet it may not be the best fit. But as one example, there might be a client who doesn't want to offer their partner emotional connection because Schnarch says their partner needs to grow up and needs to self-regulate. Or on the flip side, another client who hounds their partner about, you need to be more emotionally engaging and I'm insecure and I can't be healed unless we can connect. So couples can latch on to these with their best intentions to try to reading one of these books that are sometimes pretty helpful. But I think the debate can get polarizing for couples because they think this is the way we've unlocked the science of love or et cetera. And for some couples that's true, but in other couples, that approach is not what they need. So just offering... I think our communities and readers and couples, some thoughts on how there are multiple ways to see couple problems and even true believers in specific models that can acknowledge that there's more than just this model in terms of how to look at your problem. The amazing thing about doing this show the last four years and was one of the originators of why I had this idea, I lost my mentor one of the greatest influences, two influences on my career, Doug Sprinkle at Purdue University and Bill Pinsoff at the Family Institute at Northwestern University, involved with integration and this movement of, of common factors. And so to, to be able to document not only the leaders in our field, which we do on this show a lot, but when you ask the model developers, even the model developers, they will talk in very model-specific way but they will talk about these very common outcomes of good therapy, in this case, good couples therapy. You have to have a strong alliance. You have to create safety and connection. You have to be willing to take risk and to be able to hang in there with yourself and with your partner. So even though the way they describe it, the language they use to describe it is different. All roads lead to Rome when we're talking about good therapy and listening to you all talk today, even though 
you have your own leanings. You will have figured out, I think, what, what most people that are in the field on the front lines learn that the more, the more models, the more approaches you're able to learn, the better because our clients have enough problems. They should not have to fit to our way of working. We should be flexible enough to find a framework that both makes sense with their worldview and we are flexible enough to be able to apply that to them. And I really thank you gentlemen for a thought provoking conversation that I hope whether you're a young couples therapist or you've been out in the field a long time in season that, and really have a certain way of working, you will listen to this and draw back on what Nathan and Adam talked to us about being professionally humble and open to different perspectives. Any last words and tell the listeners if they want to continue this dialogue with you, how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, you can, you can always call me. You can email me. You can look me up. I'm on Google. But yeah, get in touch with me if you have more questions. We have had people reach out who've read our article and have engaged in some great dialogue. And it's always a pleasure for us. And so for us, this is a evolution. This is an ongoing thing. We, we don't have the final word on what this should look like if we're talking integration of these two approaches. And so I would say if you have insights, if you have thoughts, if you have opinions, we'd love to hear it because for us, this is an ongoing process and our ideas are always evolving. One thing that we are doing is we're going to try to workshop out some of these ideas, some of these dilemmas and possibilities and practice considerations because we want to hear from other people and we don't think that we're necessarily the only ones who know how this should go. And I think that also speaks to that idea of integration and collaboration. We want to model that as well, that we don't want to just be the expert who figured it out. We want everyone involved in this process like a shared project. So yeah, reach out if you have any questions or want to share your ideas. I'd say uh, just to wrap things up here for me as therapists who are entering, working with couples or trainees and things like that is to consider what moves you? What changes you? Is it empathy, kindness, warmth, and maybe the occasional firm challenge, like in my case, or is it more of this kind but no-nonsense kind of firm approach that's still collaborative? Consider what moves you. But I like what Nathan said too, that what we're doing is not the way. We're trying to look at a bunch of different possibilities and how things might fit together and keep things open. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another thoughtful discussion, at times spirited debate, on the AAMFT podcast. If you want to read further, again, 2018, Volume 57 of Family Process, where you can see Adam and Nathan discussing what we talked about today. Did you like that topic? If so, drop us a line. The listener feedback informs. What we bring you on the AMFT podcast, happy to announce we'll be back for a fifth season and certainly your feedback goes a long way in shaping that, both your listening and you dropping us a line. You can reach me, Eli, at NorthStarCounselingCenter.com. Follow the conversation on Twitter. AMFT is at the AMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. You can also find out everything you need to know about me and correspond through my website, that's elikaram.com, E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M. There you can learn more about my two projects released this year, Bringing Common Factors to Life, which is at the spirit of the show. Whether you're a young systemic therapist or more experienced one, tapping in 
to client strengths, maximizing the most out of your own God-given therapist talents and the therapeutic relationship among some of the common factors talked about this really practical reference that I am really proud of from Rutledge, Taylor and Francis Press. Also, if you're getting ready to prepare for the National Licensure Exam, an exciting project that I'll be talking more about in the new year, you can also find out more on my website. Thank you so much for your support. We're going to end our fourth season, the remainder of 2022, on a high note with some great guests, including two more in our Pioneer Series, founder of Motivational Interviewing, Dr. Bill Miller, and a woman synonymous with the term ambiguous loss, the great Pauline Boss. Two interviews that I've recently concluded and are really great ways to end the year. So whether you're interested in the pioneer emerging topics in our field of systemic therapy or just a good old-fashioned theory debate like we did today, check us out on the AMFT podcast wherever you find your favorite podcast. I'm partial to Apple Podcasts. You can check us out on Google, Spotify, but please leave a star rating and a review. That's what helps us rise through the ranks of the Mental Health Podcast. It's much appreciated. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.